Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. In today's episode, we are going to talk about breaking a therapist's trust and what to do, why we can always feel like a bad person, the signs of past sexual abuse, things we should look out for, why we can get stuck in negative thought cycles and blaming ourselves for every misstep, and whether comfort is a need or a want. Okay, let's jump into those questions. Now, question number one says, hi, Katie, I broke my therapist's trust. She expressed that she felt angry with me. I totally agree that I crossed the line, but for the rest of the session, I don't feel like she treated me very kindly. I felt pushed to stare at my own mistake a bit relentlessly, and I didn't know what the outcome of it was supposed to be. In session, I said I wanted to cry. I said I wanted to go home. I told her I was dissociating. I said I was exhausted, but she didn't back off or help me ground myself. She kept pushing and pushing, and it felt like she had her own agenda, but I didn't know what it was. Since then, I felt so hurt and also quite angry. I brought it up with her and she responded, well, but we both have lost trust in each other. Can this be fixed? Okay, now I have to be honest. When I first read this question, my immediate reaction was, how the hell do we break our therapist's trust? That's not how therapy works. I'll get into that. But then even the way, the fact that you were having a tough time, you were just so saying you were crying, you said you wanted to go home and she wouldn't back off, that's abusive. And so I cannot... I mean, I'll answer this question, but you need to find a different therapist. This person sucks and they're really bad at their jobs. And I I frankly think they shouldn't have a license. Now let's get into that. And you guys know, I'll say that you should find another therapist, but I rarely say someone should lose their license. This therapist shouldn't be seeing patients for many reasons. Number one, we can't break a therapist's trust. Uh, Patients lie to me all the time. It's not about me as the therapist. It's about you as the patient. And I'm not confiding in you. That's not how therapy works. You confide in me as the patient, right? The patient confides in the therapist and the therapist holds the space. Treats your your information with the utmost confidentiality. That's it. That's how it works. Now, I read in the comments below this that they had shared something about a, uh, it was like a friend of the person who's the patient, they'd shared something about that friend with maybe somebody else or with the therapist, that doesn't matter. That's your situation with your friend. If you know information about your friend, if you know it because your therapist told you, then that's their fault. And then they should lose their license again because that's a breach of confidentiality. That's against the law. However, you can talk about whoever, whatever in therapy, regardless of whether they see your therapist or not. That's not really your issue at all. You don't have to think about that. The therapist has to think about this. This is all kind of ass backwards to me. It doesn't make any sense. And the fact that she relentlessly pushed when you were crying, dissociating, and saying you wanted to go home, that is straight up emotional abuse. And in therapy, here's something I haven't talked about enough maybe or at all, I don't even know, is the power dynamic in therapy or in any kind of professional capacity. When we see someone who we think 
knows more about something, right? I could even say like my mechanic when I go to take my car in because I don't know why it's making that noise. That's why I'm here, right? You go to a therapist, like, I don't know why I'm feeling like this. That's why I'm here. When we go see someone who has a expertise or knowledge that we don't have, they're, they have more power than us in the, that situation. And that's why therapists are held to legal and ethical standards because you come in to see us and I can't abuse my power to like make you do things or to harm you more. Like that's an abuse of power and then I should lose my license. And that's why we have boards to, uh, who, who like the Board of Behavioral Sciences of California and of Texas. I hold licenses in both states. They hold me accountable. I mean, not that I really need them to, a therapist shouldn't, but they're there to protect you, the patient. Meaning that if your therapist steps out of line, they're reprimanded. Either there's a strike against their license, their license is revoked. They can apply and get it back later, but they have to prove that they've learned and know better. That's how it works. This therapist is terrible. You losing trust, like you can lose trust in her if you feel like she hasn't shown up for you in the way that she should. She said she's going to do one thing, did another. If she's not behaving in a therapeutic manner, like she can break your trust. You can't break her trust. That's not how therapy works. I hope I explain that clearly enough. But a therapist isn't confiding in you about things. That's the opposite of therapy. That's what they do in their own therapy. I have patients lie to me all the time. Is that them like breaking my trust? No, that's them working through their own shit in therapy. And that's what I'm here for is to meet you where you're at. Help understand why it's hard to be honest. Is it the vulnerability component? Are we embarrassed? Is there some shame attached to it? That's therapy. Whatever this is, is definitely not therapy. You need to find someone else. And I would strongly encourage you to file a a complaint. Let's move on to question number two. Now, question number two says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I want to ask you why I always feel like such a bad person. I feel like there's something wrong with me. Shame. And that's why every day I try to be nicer and nicer so that no one thinks that I'm mean. I'm so terrified of being labeled as someone mean that I will do whatever it takes to be a nice person. However, whenever I think I did something even slightly wrong, like forgetting to say thank you or sorry, um, I go into this loop and I can't stop thinking about what a terrible person I am. This leads me to think that I don't deserve to be alive and that I should punish myself because what if I actually am a terrible person? So then do I punish myself and then feel even worse? Can you tell me why I do this? Thank you so much for everything you do. Of course. Um, I have a couple questions for you. Number one, if we feel like we're always such a bad person, I'm always curious first about like, where does that come from? Hmm. When did it start? If we're like, wow, I've felt that way my entire life, Katie, I don't even know where it started. Then I suspect your upbringing slash parents or grandparents or nanny or whoever raised you, whoever your primary caregivers are, I'm going to like place some blame there. And the reason I place blame there is because there's somewhere in your life in your life you picked up this belief system that something's wrong with you, that you're a bad person, that no matter how nice you are, it's never nice enough. Now, that could have come out of abuse if we were physically, emotionally, sexually abused as a, as a child or neglected in any way. We can think that we have to please everybody, walk on eggshells, be as kind as possible, because if we're not, we're going to get hurt right? So it's protective. It's like fawning. It's, you know, fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. Fawn is 
kind of extreme people pleasing and it's done as a way to prevent more abuse from happening. It's also been called like Stockholm syndrome in the past where we like attach or have a trauma bond with our abuser. This could be part of that as well. Or we could have been told when we were a child, like, I mean, I was raised in church and I don't always, I mean, I know church is helpful for a lot of people. I'm not saying it's bad all the time, but there are some messages I personally received in church growing up that led in kind of fed into my people pleasing behavior things like little girls should be kind and say sorry and please and thank you and um how a little girl should act which is very different from how a little boy should act that's not very ladylike of you you should sit this way you should say please thank you katie you should make eye contact you should look down you should hold your hands like this like weird stuff that i heard from preachers pastors parents um my friends parents just people that could make me think that I'm supposed to be smaller, less important. I can't take up space. Therefore, everybody else is more important, so I should be more kind to them. You see what I mean? I know this can feel like it's very complicated, but it's really not. You've heard this message in one way or another that you're bad and everybody else is good. And so in order to make up for your badness, you need to do all these things. And I'm here to challenge you to question where that came from. Because that in in there is your answer. It could be inner child work. It should be processing a trauma. It could be um, navigating your negative self-talk because maybe you were bullied in school and someone told you this. You had a really bad teacher or someone who told you this or your parent told you this. Again, depending on the age, like the inner child work might be where we go with it. But at the very least right now, when you find your brain swirling in these thoughts of like, I'm such a bad person, no one's ever going to forgive me, something's just wrong with me because you have those shame thoughts, I want you to challenge those by checking facts. Like, what are the facts? Well, I didn't say sorry to that person. Okay, well, let's check that fact. If someone didn't say sorry to me, would I think they're a terrible person? Hmm. Would I? Probably not. I might think, well, that was kind of rude. That's different from being a bad person, right? We'll challenge it a little. We can check our facts. But the big thing here is going to be bridge statements. And this might be hard for you and it might not be the key because I know shame can make bridge statements hard because we're like, I don't even deserve that. But hang with me. If you can get yourself to muster up the oomph to try it, try arguing back. Starting off with like, you know, I might be like a a terrible bad person, but I'm open to believing that maybe... Maybe I heard that from somewhere that I know that might not sound that positive, but it's not as negative and it doesn't spiral us out. So consider where you can take this little by little moving in a less negative direction. Remember, bridge statements are not about being positive. That's toxic positivity. Bridge statements are about moving us incrementally away from those negative thoughts so that we don't spiral out and in essence, almost like prove them over and over again in our head, if that makes sense. So all in all, no, I don't believe you're a terrible person if you needed to hear it. You sound actually overly kind and passive. But I think you do this because of some other situation or person who's told you that you're bad. And I want you to kind of dive into that. Be curious, not judgmental about yourself, just curious about where it comes from. Because there in therein lies our key to healing. Okay? Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, I have several signs of being sexually abused as a little girl. 
I don't have any memory of it and no suspicions as to who may have done it, nor when it happened. I don't have body memories. I don't have flashbacks and I don't have a story to tell myself. How do I bring this up in therapy? How can I work on something that I have no memory of and that I'm not even sure happened? And will I ever stop doubting myself? Thanks for everything you do, Katie. You bring light and hope to my world. Oh, I'm so, I'm so glad. I'm grateful I can be here. Now, you bring this up in therapy just the way you brought it up to me. You have several signs. I'm very curious what those signs are because you have something that has happened, whether it's a flash of a memory. I know you say you don't have flashbacks. So I'm just saying like a little blip. Maybe it's a feeling in your gut. Maybe we remember wetting the bed after we were potty trained as a kid and we're like, why did that happen? Maybe we just have blipses of like, oh, I remember feeling scared, but we don't know why, right? Whatever those several signs that you're experiencing, talk to your therapist about it. And you can say it just like you said it to me. I don't have flashbacks. I don't have a story to tell myself. I I don't have any memory, but I have signs. I have these like symptoms. These are things that I notice. What gives? Because when we go to therapy, we don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to already know what the solution is or what the, what to call it. We just have to show up with as much information as we can muster in the most honest way possible. Now, I know even that is hard, but that's why you can tell your therapist just like you told it to me. Like, how can I work on something that I have no memory of? How I don't have any, you know, I don't know who it was. I don't know when it happened, but I just have these signs that something's wrong. Your therapist will ask, you know, thoughtful, engaging questions without pushing you or make, or causing you to feel like you're just making it up because you're not making it up. Something's there and we just need to feel free to explore it. So be patient with yourself as you try to figure it out. Um, again, you can just bring it up in therapy. We don't have to have any answers. We don't have to know. It's okay to ask. Now to answer some of your questions, how can I work on something that I have no memory of that I'm not even sure happened by starting to talk about it? and showing yourself a little compassion, because there's something there. Um, my friend, Dr. Alexa Altman, who's a trauma specialist, said something I've probably shared before, but it, it's warrants sharing again. She said that when we don't have any memory of a trauma, or when the memory's really spotty, and we're not really sure, did it happen? Did it not? Don't fear, don't think you have to have full memory before you can process something. Most of the trauma work is finding ways to manage the symptoms that you're feeling today that are bothering you now so that we can get those to go away. Because imagine if you don't have any symptoms of trauma, then it's not bothering us and we are essentially healed or in recovery, right? It's those signs and symptoms that make us feel terrible and cause our life to feel like it's in disrepair or overwhelming or out of control, right? And so if we can manage that and we can find tools and techniques and things to alleviate those symptoms, win-win. So don't think you have to have a memory to be able to work on it. We just need to know how it's affecting us. Again, back to those several signs that you're experiencing. Okay. There was a comment on this as I can relate to this so much as an add-on are the signs we feel and experience today enough to believe ourselves that we have been sexually abused or are they just signs and are not valid enough? They're definitely valid enough, but I'll get into that. And if there is no memory and maybe will never be, how can we cope with the insecurity, whether there was something happening or not, and that we maybe never might really know? This insecurity is so hard. Of course it is. Not being sure and feeling like things aren't good enough is unfortunately something that you're going to have to work as one of those signs and symptoms in therapy that you have to process, right? And a couple pieces here. 
So the signs that you experience today are enough. That's actually how we get diagnosed with PTSD or how someone tells us, yeah, you've been sexually abused. It's through those signs and those symptoms. That's all it takes. There's no level of uh, how much abuse one needs to sustain or how much memory one has to have for it to be true. This insecurity or this uh, distrust of self, this feeling like maybe you're making it up, this invalidation, this minimization that we're doing, unfortunately is part of the trauma itself. That in and of itself is actually another symptom. Honestly, more proof that what we're going through is trauma and that it, we were abused, that that did happen. Now, I know that that's hard for us to wrap our brain around. That's hard for us to trust. And that will take time. But in the meantime, be honest and open with your therapist about this. Tell them that you just feel like you don't have this memory. You're feeling like it's not, it must not have happened. I must be making all these symptoms up. Talk about it. Because any good therapist is going to say things like, would there be a reason that anybody would want to feel the way you feel? Would this be something that you truly think you'd bring up on yourself? If I could take it away today, would you bring it back tomorrow on purpose? Think about that. Because the answer is always, of course not. Trauma feels terrible. I don't want to experience those symptoms. So whenever we're doubting ourselves, just ask yourself those questions, okay? It can sometimes pull us out of that thought spiral. Now, there was another comment on it. It says, I have something similar and would love to hear your feedback on this. I have body memories and some flashes of things, but no faces really, and no clear cut memories, but have so many symptoms of sexual abuse. My sister accused my father of sexual abuse and my father finally admitted sexually abusing her when she was a child. Wow. She was in her thirties and so was I at the time, but I had no memories at the time and no clue anything ever happened to me. And he never admitted to doing anything to me. I just always thought I was a sick, messed up person that had mental problems. I always struggled with depression and low self-esteem and didn't like men or, um, or tough men and ended up dating women and figured that that was why. But then I got married to an extremely abusive man whom I somehow felt I deserved. My therapist now feels that I was abused by my father, but I feel guilty. And when I don't have the clear cut memories, oh, I feel guilty about it when I don't have the clear cut memories. Can I deal with this in therapy without the clear-cut memories? Yes, I'll talk about that. The flashes I have are of a hand coming at me and someone on top of me, but I can't see their face. And I can't stand anyone touching my stomach. I have a strong history of dissociating, and that's how I've uh, coped with having intimate relationships. I'm so sorry you're going through this. Yes, you have a ton of symptoms. Something clearly happened to you. And I would, like your therapist, assume or hypothesize that it was your father because if he did it to your sister most likely did it to you not always but a lot of times when there's abuse in the family it hits every child especially when you're both female now can i deal with this in therapy without clear-cut memories yes in many ways like we'd already talked about previously with the other questions but also we can do somatic work, meaning things with our bodies, moving our bodies through the trauma experiences, the flashes of memory that we have, even the hand coming at you situation. Can we like move our body through it? Can we fight back? Can we do some narrative therapy where we change the ending of that story? Can we do maybe some schema or parts work where we figure out the different kind of portions of ourself that dealt with that and how we coped? and different pieces of who we are and how that affected our life, right? I know all of this sounds very maybe abstract, but there's a lot of different ways that we can manage um, a trauma, even uh, EMDR. 
with the little flashes of memory that you have, you can start EMDR and that can help you maybe process through a trauma in a way you never felt possible. All of those are potential ways. We don't have to have full memory to process it. Again, it's more the symptoms that we're going to work on. That's where we can focus most of our energy on because that's what's dysregulating and upsetting in our life today. And we could even come up with some grounding techniques so that dissociation doesn't happen so often, right? And get us to a place where we can have healthy, happy, intimate relationships. So yes, it can get better. Not seeing faces, uh, as a side note, is incredibly common. In this case, just because we are hypothesizing it was your dad, I have had many patients over the years who have struggled to see a face because to admit who it was was too painful. It felt too heavy. And so that can be why that particular face is blurred because it is, we're guessing it's your father, right? And that's hard to, it's hard to cope with. That's, it's a heavy thing to realize and to recognize. And so I would assume your brain in a way, like it dissociates, it's protecting you from that because it's too much to bear right now. So be patient with yourself, okay? As you delve into these bits of memory, as you work to manage them, those symptoms and work towards feeling better. There's a final add-on that says, I have a similar issue. I have snippets of memories and images as well as body memories. I was told my symptoms fit the PTSD criteria, but I'm scared it would just make everything worse if I believed all of this was true. Also, is it normal for these symptoms, flashbacks, nightmares, and dissociation to fluctuate? Yes. I keep hoping that a better day just means that it'll all it's all made up. I just don't know how to deal with this and feel unable to talk about it in therapy. Okay, so yes, your symptoms fit PTSD criteria. There is a piece when we when we finally recognize and accept that what happened happened, where the realization of that is, like I said, is very heavy, is very difficult, but it doesn't necessarily make any of the symptoms worse. It just, the realization can be hard to bear and a lot to process. And that's why doing it in therapy and taking our time with it is you don't have to believe it's all true right away. It might not feel safe to do so at this moment. That's okay. Take your time with it. Obviously, you have PTSD, so something did happen. Now, it is normal for those, you know, the flashbacks, nightmares, and dissociation to fluctuate. And the reason for that is it depends on our resilience level. Like if we have a super stressful day and we are triggered all day long, our symptoms are going to be worse. Our window of tolerance or our built-up resilience is like minimal. Like just the other day, I was like just agitated and irritated at nothing really, but everything at the same time. And I was kind of bitching to Sean about it. And I was like, you know what? My resilience is just down. I didn't sleep very well. I'm feeling really overwhelmed with work. I'm like maxed out. I'm hungry. I need to eat lunch. Like there were these things that were stacking up, right? I didn't have the bandwidth to manage any upset. I was already upset, right? And so just know that that's why things can fluctuate. Just depends on how we're doing that day in that moment and how much stress or maybe even triggers we've encountered so far. I don't think you're making it up, but give yourself time and find a way to potentially start talking about it in therapy. We can start with something very vague, like, you know, sometimes I have these weird symptoms that make me think I have PTSD, like something happened. I don't think I did, but we can bring it up like that. We can write it in a letter or an email. If they allow you to email, you can email that. Uh, We can read from a letter. We can leave the letter with them. There are other ways to share if we don't feel okay talking about it right away. And that can ensure that it's not forgotten and that it's brought up later, little by little, as you're able to manage. 
because we're going to want to have grounding techniques in place so we don't dissociate. We're going to want to set ourselves up for success. So be patient with yourself. Talking about this is hard and it's super uncomfortable, but it can and will get better, okay? Hang in there. And I know you're not making it up, but I also know it's hard to acknowledge when bad things like that happen. Okay, let's move on to question number four. It says, hi, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, I am often reminded of minor mistakes that I've made in my life throughout the day. These personal small blunders from my past enter my stream of consciousness like a flashback. Randomly remembering these instances is unpleasant. So I try to use thought stop being tried uh, thought stopping strategies <laughs> that was a tongue twister thought stopping strategies to get them out of my mind is there a more effective way of stopping my subconscious mind from bringing up these insignificant moments so my when i read this question first of all same um i thought anxiety i was like oh anxiety so helpful uh always ruining our nights making us think of all the shitty stupid things we've said ever in our life and how embarrassing that was and oh my god why did i do that and right all the regret all the embarrassment all the shame and they often are stupid things like i just brought up an old memory of something i said years like probably 10 years ago to sean he's like that's actually not that bad and i was like it is to me right it feels bad so i have a feeling this is anxiety i don't know if you're seeing a therapist but i would encourage you to do so And thought-stopping strategies, the best ones that I can think of, we used to think that saying stop, 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 or, um, you know, imagining a stop sign in our brain, like all of that would help it. Newer research proves that that actually makes it worse. Better things to do are, there's two, really. One is acknowledge in your head, be like, this is just a stupid thought. This is an old memory. Now, the reason that this might not work as well for this is because there's emotional connections to it you're like oh i feel embarrassed i don't like it this is horrible and it feels like i'm like re-injuring myself with the mistake i made in the past but you can often consider like this is just a thought i don't have to engage with it this is just a memory it doesn't mean i have to play it back right sometimes just giving ourselves a little bit of power in the scenario can really help versus you know letting it swirl us out and then we're like exhausted and maxed out and maybe have a panic attack or dissociate right we don't have to let it take us that way that's one the second is that we can instead when this thought pops up oh and it's a small blunder from the past and we're like oh so uncomfortable why did i do that i hate it we can acknowledge that that is happening oh i know what this is this is that stupid runaway thought i don't want to go there instead i'm going to tell myself about my favorite memory or i'm going to make up a favorite memory this could be um one of your favorite vacations or maybe you just had a really lovely day maybe you had a day where you didn't have to do anything and everything's kind of worked out in in your favor like you called a friend last minute and they met you for lunch or you went and got a coffee and just walked around it was like sunny like not even normal for that season it was unseasonably warm and nice or if you don't like the heat it was unseasonably cool it was beautiful right whatever it is tell yourself that memory or make up a memory and do it with all of your senses involved what are you seeing what are you hearing you know go through all five of your senses tell me all about it in as much detail as possible and i know you're like katie what the hell does this have to do with anxious thoughts you're emotionally charging a memory and you're pulling your brain it has more pull to our brain to that than to these stupid thoughts that aren't helpful that tell us about small blunders from our past. 
So you do that and then your brain forgets about the garbage it was trying to spew and then we're off in a happier place. And I don't know if this helps you either, but like for me, I like to sometimes know why it's happening. So I'm not just assuming I'm going crazy. Our brain does this. It it looks for these past upsets and blunders, especially our anxious brain, because our brains are wired to seek out threat. And when we don't have any threats really to our physical safety, we look for emotional safety too, right? And these are embarrassing. These are terrible. We're trying to learn about our brains. Like I need to learn all about these so I don't do it again. And so it keeps pulling us back to it, playing it over and over and over, trying to prepare us for the same exact situation in the future, which isn't helpful. It's only hurtful. And that's why we have to stop it from essentially turning on itself. I hope that helps. Hang in there. There's also... Um, my friend Michelin Malouf, she's on Instagram. She shares some thought-stopping strategies as well, so you can look her up. I follow her on Instagram, so you can look at my followers and search because um, I know her name is a little tricky to spell, um, but she offers a lot of those because she struggles with this as well. Okay, final question. Question number five says, hey, Katie, I'm wondering about comfort. Is it a need or a want? I know children need comfort, but I'm a 40-year-old adult. I love the start of this question because initially, like immediately I was like, oh, do we like age out of needing comfort? Is that something that happens? And when we get become adults, do we just not have that need anymore? That'd be interesting, right? Think about it. We do that to ourselves all the time with our age. We think I'm too old for insert basic human need. I'm too old to need my mom to hold me when I cry. I'm a grown woman. I don't need anybody needing would be bad, right? We judge ourselves so much. And I'm like, we're still this, I'm still little Katie. I still have the same human needs. I just happen to be older and have more experience, different perspective, more emotional intelligence. I'm, I'm a little bit more, you know, adult or independent or responsible. I, I have more resources. I'm still just me. I'm no different than eight-year-old me, right? I still am human. I still have needs. So no, we don't grow out of needing comfort, but we'll get into that. It says, okay, I'm a 40-year-old adult. Meds plus two and a half years of therapy have helped me get to get a little better at handling my feelings, but honestly, I'm still stuck. I still crave comfort when my emotions get so overwhelming, which is often, but I don't trust anyone except my therapist. She is magic. In session, when I spiral into a puddle of anxiety and tears, she somehow knows how to help calm me down. She talks in such a kind, gentle voice. She tells me it's okay. I don't know how she does it. When I'm alone and the feelings get too big, my brain screams for an off button. Sometimes it screams for my therapist. I feel like a stupid child for not being able to handle my own feelings, which I know are my responsibility and no one else's. No matter how many coping skills I learn, why can't I comfort myself as well as my therapist can? How can I stop wishing that she could help me when I'm alone? Is it okay to crave comfort? Is it a need or just something that I wish for? Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. One random tip that popped in my head that I want to tell you before I forget is that ask your therapist if you can record a session because then you might be able to have her voice uh, or something you can replay. Maybe she'll record something for you. I've done that for patients, just recording. I had them write a le letter of comfort to themselves, which could be a good homework assignment for you. And then I read it and you could they could read it and you could record it so that you have it on hand all the time. So that's just a, a tip. Now, okay, you can't comfort yourself as well as your therapist can because it's possible nobody ever comforted you and this is very new 
Because what this screams to me is inner child work. I have a feeling when you were a kid, you weren't comforted. You never felt seen, heard, important. Those are all valuable things to feel as a child. It's part of our development. It's part of how we grow into emotionally intelligent, well-rounded individuals. You weren't given that opportunity. Your parents or whoever was taking care of you did not offer that. And that's why the anxiety, the tears, and struggling to calm down happens because we're trying to cope with what we've got and we don't know how to self-soothe. No one helped us. Because when we're children, think of like babies, like they're soothed through sucking and swallowing and feeding, right? And as moms and dads and parents, we pat their back, we rub on them, we tell them it's going to be okay, we sing them lullabies, we rock them to sleep. All of that, in essence, is a parent not only soothing the child, but teaching the child how to soothe right? Oh, I feel good when I'm held. I feel good when someone plays with my hair. I still remember um, my grandma and my my Aunt Margot in church and other times when I would be like acting up and stuff, they would scratch my back and play with my hair. And it was my favorite. It was so soothing. I could just zone out. You guys, it was amazing. And I still to this day, like back scratches, Sean will rub my back if I'm feeling overwhelmed. Just because I'm older doesn't mean I don't need that. So that's why this is happening. I don't think you were ever taught how to self-soothe. No one ever soothed you. And so we're very dysregulated. And your therapist is offering you something that you so desperately need. And here's the answer to your question. Comfort is a need. Now, we can go back and track it back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I got a comment when I talked about this last time where someone's like, that's so simplistic. Yes, it is simplistic. But sometimes we got to go back to the basics. It's not thorough. It's a very limited view. But it gives us a view of our needs as humans some of them. Now we have to meet all of the needs in each level before we can move on to the next stage. And the very bottom level is physiological needs, things like air, water, food, shelter, sleep, stuff like that. But the level after that, so we have five levels, we're only in level two. Level two are safety needs. These are things like personal security, employment, resources, health, property, personal security, comfort, feeling okay, the next one, so these are just our basic needs. So the bottom, we're moved to the second. Now we're to the third out of five is love and belonging. That means friendship, intimacy, family, sense of connection. Those are all tied up in comfort. So when you say, is it a want or a need? It's a need. It's something we all need in order for us to be able to operate up in those I mean, if even from the hierarchy of needs to move up into what they call, I don't really like it, but it's called self-actualization. It's essentially like the freedom to feel like we know who we our true self is. We can um, aspire for greater. We can succeed in our careers. We can think for ourselves. We can be, be creative, right? I, I truly have a sense of self. Therefore, I can do what I need to in my life and what I want. We have to have those safety needs. We have to have that love and belonging. We have to feel like we have a home and food and shelter, which is all all I would argue is another part of like security and comfort. So you really need it. And it's okay to crave it because my guess is that you never got it. And it might be helpful for you to write like what comfort looks like for you, what comfort you'd like to receive. What is it about your therapist that feels so lovely and magic? I love that you described her as magic because it's it, she has she's able to offer you that one thing that you probably didn't even realize you you needed so badly. So take some time with it. It's okay to need it. I need it too. We all do. Okay, let's move on to this comments. 
I think we have two or three here. The first one says, to piggyback off of this, Katie, how can one overcome feeling as if the one day a week of therapy is the only safe day of the week? Utilize it. We don't have to overcome this feeling. We need to understand it and we need to maximize that space. So that means we need to talk about this in therapy. What is it about therapy? Be curious that makes it feel so safe. Are there other ways we could create that in our life? Maybe right now the answer is no. We don't have any good friends that are close enough. We don't have family we can trust. We don't have anybody in our life that we feel safe enough to talk to. How could we cultivate that? What would that relationship look like? Right? We can utilize our therapy space as a great representation of what we want to create in the real world, in our life out of therapy. That can help us see things that maybe we wouldn't be able to see. It can identify some characteristics or things that make it feel quote unquote safe. You know, there are ways to create kind of a, a neutral feeling for us. And that's through like repetitive action. I think that's why people like coloring is soothing. It's a repetitive action. Um, I think that's why knitting feels good for people. I think that's why people play guitars and stuff. It's a repetitive action. Think of the motion. Um, vacuuming, folding clothes, putting dishes away. Like it's very repetitive. And that repetition feels very soothing to our brain and our body. So that's some way you can try to create a little bit of neutrality, if not maybe a little bit of safety at home or on your own. But use that time in therapy to better understand that feeling of comfort and find ways to bring that into other parts of your life. At, at least you have it somewhere. That's a great thing. It's like you have a little incubator and we need to find out how to spread that out into other parts of our life. So talk to your therapist about it and let's come up with some strategies, okay? Another add-on says, I feel like I'm the complete opposite and I feel discomfort at anyone that is trying to comfort me. Hmm, maybe because we never were comforted. I won't allow myself to cry even when I'm deeply upset or hurt. I can comfort others and support them if they are hurting. I have an enormous discomfort at seeing someone else suffering, being humiliated or bullied, and I want to help them. I can't even watch television with people being humiliated or hurt because I feel so bad for them. I can't watch it either. I just don't understand why I suppress my emotions and why I'm terrified of allowing myself to need anyone. Probably in the same way we talked at the beginning in your upbringing, I have a feeling that if you turn to someone looking for support, you were uh, pushed off. You were told you were being too much, too sensitive, or uh, go sit down and shut up. We were probably emotionally abused at the very least, if not other abuse going on. So being hurt, expressing discomfort or discontent was too scary. It wasn't allowed. It could mean that we were abused more or worse, or it could mean that we were just going to be emotionally hurt more because someone wasn't going they were going to be neglected right someone wasn't going to meet us where we were at so we found it to be like an effort and futility why even try it's coming from somewhere like that because you didn't get it you recognize the importance of it and that's why you want to offer it to other people you're an empathic badass you feel for other people just not for yourself because that wasn't okay so i'd i'd Dig into that a little bit. Be curious. Be a detective about it, right? Where'd this come from? Is is Katie right? Did it come from something like that? Did someone ever tell me or show me through behaviors that it wasn't okay for me to need something, to need comfort, to ask for someone to hold me? When I cried, did my parents not come? The thing that kind of sucks about some of this is that we might not know because it could have happened before long-term memories were formed. It could have been when we were like one or two. But it still helps to be curious about it. When has this, when did this happen? When's, when do we remember the first time feeling this way? Has it been like our whole lives? 
is can we talk to a sibling or a parent who might know the answers? Maybe or maybe not. But let's explore it a little bit because that my hypothesis is that it comes from the fact that it wasn't okay for you to do that as a child growing up. And so as an adult, you still have that same belief and that same story and you're like, mm, this isn't safe. I can't do that. And so you don't allow for it. We stuff it down. Talk to your therapist. It'll really help. Okay. Hopefully we can create that one safe space for you too. Final add-on says, oh my God, I feel just like this. I am way too old to not be able to handle my own emotions. Look at that age judgment again. Ugh. I feel so dysregulated sometimes. I, uh, like a feeling will come on from a thought and it's like a roller coaster. And I just wish so bad I called my therapist right then and there. I know, uh, I know he would know the exact right thing to say or do to help me calm down and understand what's happening in my mind and emotions, but I cannot do that. I keep trying to learn to handle these things on my own and use my tools, but will I ever get to the point where this will stop feeling this way? Yes. I love that you're like, I want to call my therapist, right? They'll know what to do. Talk to them about this in your next session. I knew that you'd know what to do, but I don't know in the moment. Let's start trying things out. You said you'll try tools and stuff, but they don't work. So, okay, those aren't working. What would your therapist do that you can't do? Again, can we record our therapist saying something like, you got this, don't worry, breathe through it, like walking you through some of your coping skills. Maybe that's what we need. Let's fucking record that on, on our phone. Let's keep it. Or maybe it means that they would have us stomp our feet or have us shake it out, have us dunk our face in cold water. Can we access those things? Let's write these things down. Often therapists just think differently than us because they're not emotionally tied to the thing, right? So let's take our session time with our therapist to put this list together. We'll try it the next time we feel like this roller coaster is starting and we'll edit it from there. Just because we put it on a list doesn't mean it's going to work and doesn't mean it should stay on that list, right? So trial and error. Let's get you some of those coping skills that work because your therapist, while they are, they're magic, and I believe that we can be kind of magic, let's like harness that and use that to help us when we're in session and out of session. So let's put that list together. And if you're looking for some ideas, I have that video, 25 Coping Skills. Just go to 25 Coping Skills, Katie Morton on YouTube. You can find it. And there's a shit ton of them in the comments. So you can find some more coping skills there as well. Okay, you got this. That's all for today. Thank you so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sharing this podcast. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.